In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Strings Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And this is a podcast all about psychology. And uh, we are back from our summer break. And for this episode, we thought we'd just ease ourselves into podcasting for the year. We do have quite a number of topics that we want to get to this year. Hopefully, we can get to all of them. We probably we probably won't, but there's lots of things that we do want to kind of do. But we thought, you know, the last couple of summers, we've done something sort of a little bit easier, or a little bit left field. So we had taken up a suggestion from a colleague in psychiatry, Dr. Jackie Rakov. She's a forensic psychiatrist extraordinaire. And uh, she contacted us on Twitter asking us about the psychology behind the seven deadly sins. So we thought we might have a look at that. So seven deadly sins, it's a grouping of vices within Christian teachings, particularly Catholic teaching. Mm. These are behaviors or habits that are thought to give rise to other immoralities. So thought to be really, I guess, essentially my take on it. They were saying, you know, there are sort of abuses or excesses of sort of normal drives or mm. something like that. Gluttony is an excess of hunger, mm. that kind of thing. So I'm absolutely not religious and this is not going to be a religious podcast, no. FYI. And I went to a Baptist school, so we didn't, you know, we weren't even meant to talk about Catholics then, I don't <laughs> think. So I, I didn't know much about them at all. And apparently the seven deadly sins aren't mentioned in the Bible. Okay. Uh, they originated from a group of um, early Christian hermits and monks in the third century called the Desert Fathers. Love a good hermit. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> they lived in the desert in Egypt. Although I'm sure that like that probably wasn't, that, like, that's a, like an English name for yeah. them. So, so something else. Anyway, so uh, I guess my first exposure to the seven deadly sins mm. was probably the most most people which was david finch's film seven <laughs> this was found behind the same refrigerator written in greece there are seven deadly sins captain gluttony greed sloth wrath pride lust and ended. Seven. Hold on. So the plan for this episode is we're going to go through each of the sins and look at a piece of research that has attempted to define and examine behavior relating to these sins, this mm-hmm. sin. And Amy and I haven't really talked about it. We just divvied up <laughs> the sins and there's just kind of like our little take on it. So it's really just a fun exercise to look at a different section of psychological research. Mm-hmm. What was your general reaction to reading about these different areas of human emotion and behavior? What I found interesting was that some of them were really heavily laden with that religious element Mm -hmm. to it. So it took me ages to find something for lust that wasn't based on something that a religious scholar had written about it, for example. Mm. So I found, found that interesting. And also just that even though a lot of them in theory were, you know, being approached by you know scientists trying to be neutral Hmm. there was still a sense of um morality to all of the the studies that were there like these things are kind of questionable yeah even though they're things that probably everybody 
either feels or indulges in or whatever you want to call it at a different point in time. Yeah. They're not unusual. They're not, we're not talking about things that people will never have experienced. Mm. But there's sort of a, maybe we shouldn't be feeling these things. Yeah, see, it was interesting because I came, it shone through in the couple of ones that I looked at where the sort of the social psychology mm. component and then looking at why these have been, why do we still do them or yeah. why do we have them and having a look at sort of that evolutionary psychology kind of thing, which I thought was really interesting because I, I did quite a lot of social psychology in my undergraduate and I, I found yeah. it a really interesting field to look at and read about. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, quite a few of the ones that I'll talk about come from that field and use on-campus experiments with, with students to test things out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's kind of fun. So we are going to get through that. Um, it's probably going to be a bit of a longer episode just because we've got to cover seven things. Yep. So before we get started, just a reminder, if you like the show, please rate and review our show. Uh, if you can do that on the Apple Podcast Store or whatever it is called nowadays, that'd be great. Or if you like it, just tell someone about it or link it on your social media or whatever. If you want to get in contact with us like Dr. Rakoff did, then email us at twostringspod at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter. Other thoughts? Mm. Let's get to Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Which scene are we going to start with, Amy? Envy. Envy. Yes. Okay. So in the introduction, you mentioned that there was a lot of social psychology around the sins. Yep. This one is an absolutely classic social psychology kind of study, which is why I was drawn to it because it reminded me of my undergrad days. So envy, how would you describe it? Just to put you on the spot. Uh, I'd say like jealousy. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea with envy is that it's about wanting to have something that someone else has, whether that's that they're attractive or that they have something physical that you want or they have qualities you want, whatever it is. Whereas jealousy is more about worrying that someone else is going to take away what you have. So it's more often interpersonal, okay. whereas envy can kind of be like, but I really want that bag that that stranger has yeah it's not say personal like, so versus say like your partner who's jealous of the fact you're spending time with some with exactly. someone else yeah right yeah exactly it's one of those things where everyone assumes that there's something wrong with envy and that envy is kind of harmful but it hasn't been looked at so the idea was that these researchers wanted to really understand what role that negative feeling people had towards other people how it actually played out whether they would be harmful to other people whether it would just mean that they'd avoid helping them, they'd just be a bit reserved. Mm -hmm. And so they set up a bunch of experiments and they used really practical things, which I loved about this. So this study is called To Help or to Harm, Assessing the Impact of Envy on Pro-Social and Antisocial Behaviours by Beeler and colleagues in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin last year, 2020. They did two studies. And they wanted to see in the first one whether if people were made to feel envious, whether they would help another person less. And so to set this up, got a bunch of undergrad students and told them that there'd be three parts to the study. They'd have to fill out a questionnaire, do an individual emotion writing task, and then go and do a writing task with a partner. But what actually happened was they did a bunch of questionnaires about you know, their baseline envy and personality things and whatever. And then they're asked to close their eyes and reflect on a situation that made them feel really envious. So the strongest that they could think of and just really sort of stew on it for a minute. Mm. Then they had to write that down for 10 minutes and write it in all the detail they could think of, all of the emotions, what happened next, exactly how intensely they felt before then going into a room with 
said confederate. So what's a confederate for people so, who's not a, it's like... Yeah, a confederate is, it's usually a research assistant who's helping out with the study. And there's someone who is pretending to be someone else, usually another participant. Yeah. And so these participants thought they were going in to help this other participant with a task. Experimenter walks them in and then pretends to have forgotten some forms. Leaves the two alone together, leaves the room. Again, classic social psychology setting up a kind of artificial interaction. The confederate then knocks over a container of pencils onto the table mm-hmm. accidentally and sort of slowly picks them up one by one. And the measure was how many pencils were picked up by the participant. Mm-hmm. And the more pencils they picked up, the more helpful they were, less, less helpful. Yeah. Experimenter comes back in, hands them both a piece of paper, and the confederate has to write down how many pencils the other person picked up. The person has to rate how envious they were feeling at the time. And then everyone's debriefed and told that it was all a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Ran this through. And what they found was that the more envious you made someone beforehand, the fewer pencils they picked up. They didn't help as much or they didn't help at all. They just sat there and passively just let the other person pick up all of the pencils over time. The research is like, okay, this matches with what we were thinking. Will people who are envious actively harm someone else Mm -hmm. i was a little curious how they were going to do this because from a research perspective we don't usually harm people generally we used to and there's a lot of controversy not knowingly not knowingly would be be the uh the research thing anyway any any psych students will know the history of psychology doing stuff like telling people that they're electrocuting other people or stuff like that Mm. we have a bad history this is not that (laughs) So like the first study, they gave them a bunch of measures, looking at their baseline envy, all of that sort of stuff. They induced the same envious state again. And then they said that they had to do a puzzle task. Have you seen tangrams? No. They're essentially a bunch of either little tiles or paper in basic shapes like triangles and things. And you have to make them into a shadow image that's on a piece of paper. Yeah, right. So it kind of looks like a silhouette. Mm -hmm. And so they had a bunch of these puzzles And they told them that they had to assign 10 puzzles out of the selection to another student. And if both them and the student managed to get the puzzle pieces, you know, assembled in the right order in 10 minutes, then they would both get course credit. If only one of them did, the person who completed the puzzles in time would get double the course credit. Yeah, right. So they could then choose whether they gave the other person easy puzzles to give them both a good chance getting credit or harder it was interpreted that the harder ones were like harming someone else yeah so it's essentially yeah you're doing something for yourself versus doing it versus for, yeah. for them they did the same questionnaires then they activated the envy the same way yeah through that same through that task imagery yeah. 10 minutes thinking about it then they got them to assign the puzzles to the other person either in whatever degree of difficulty they wanted to do and then they got them to rate how envious they were feeling in that moment at that time. Yeah. So the idea was to see whether they actually were feeling envious when they did that task or whether it had abated over time, mm. just to double check that mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. envious. So the envy group assigned more difficult puzzles to the other group and they also said that they intended to harm the other people mm. more than what the baseline group did. They'd also included in a sort of subgroup of people who were induced to feel gratitude in the second one to try and see whether there was a difference between the two interestingly the gratitude people 
said that they intended to harm people just as much as the envious group, but they didn't actually harm them behaviourally. So there was some sort of difference. Something came in there to stop them from acting on it. Overall, what they concluded was that if you're feeling envious, then you're more likely to passively not help someone and you're more likely to actively harm someone. Mm. They didn't find that the participants went out of their way to not help Mm. the other person. So Mm. they still gave them some easy puzzles, but it was more that they lent more the other way. They lent more towards the let's give them difficult ones. Yeah, it's really curious. There's like, that's like a piece of research looking at what happens when that emotion is triggered, isn't it? And then what would be interesting would be if you could run the same experiments but triggered a negative, another negative valent yeah. Emotion. Because we tend of, to help others less yeah, when like, we you feel know, negative. Yeah. Th- th- that's, that would be quite interesting to sort of see. Because it's sort of interesting to think about like when you said, oh, you know, what's what's something that's made you feel really envious? Mm. And like, it's kind of curious things. Like I'm getting like this idea of like as a child, some friends I knew had like a whole lot of micro machines that yeah. I didn't have. Like, yeah. And that, it's and, really like gut. Yeah. It's in- but also that... It didn't have to be that the envious experience that was triggered, it wasn't like that they then wanted to harm the person who was involved in that envious experience. Mm. It was that it generalized to whoever yeah, was around. It, yeah, it was a kind of like, I think it, it's like it's like you're envious and then so you feel like maybe the world's unfair and then so you then feel justified in, in, yeah. in taking out. and, and to, Exactly. Bit, and, it's, and, and it's like, was it the queen in Snow White? Mm. She talks to the mirror on the wall. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah, she sets it up to have her stepdaughter killed so that she can be the most beautiful. Yes, murdered. (laughs) So that she can be the most beautiful in all the land. The thing that I think surprised the authors was that feeling gratitude didn't seem to do enough. You know, people still intended to harm someone else. Mm. So they started talking about things like self-compassion or other things that you could do to help people feel kinder. But it sort of... It felt a little bit like we don't know what to do with this problem. Yeah. Like, we don't know. I really like that when you read enough research, when you see researchers that kind of come across the, yeah, yeah. Look, we're not sure. No, but this is what people do. <laughs> we know this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Where are we going to go next? I thought we'd go Pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my first thought when I think of Pride is this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not really pride no. before we get to a pop culture a proper pop culture reference of mm. pride the reason i wanted to do pride early on was that again with the background of of the seven deadly sins of so the catholic church used this framework of the seven deadly sins to help people curb their evil inclinations mm. <laughs> right and what was interesting is that teachers apparently focused on pride Okay. And that, that was thought to be the sin that severs the soul from grace, quote unquote grace. So pride is the very essence of evil, essentially, along with greed. So these two sort of like underlie all the sins. Is that because pride is about putting yourself above others and therefore are you putting yourself above God or above Jesus or yep. whatever? Are you thinking that you are a special being that isn't? 
I don't know. I'm I don't know. Spitballing here, but I mean, well, I mean, I, I don't. I'm no religious scholar. No. Um, I, I thought it was also interesting because, like, I did all this religious education at school, hmm. and I never knew what grace was. Like, and so I like, I was like, oh, there's what, a link. link. What did you think it was? I've got no idea. So apparently, grace is defined as the love and mercy given to us by God, because mm-hmm. God desires us to have it, not because of anything we have done to earn it. Which okay. I thought was interesting just like completely sidetracking here, which was that grace is, is love that's not earned. It's just given to us, mm. but we can essentially unearn it if we're yeah. too prideful. It's an interesting logical system. It, it doesn't make s- Anyway, l- yeah. let's not get into the Bible. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of emails, a lot of angry emails. Um, so would you say hmm. pride is a virtue or a sin? I think it depends on how the context. Yeah. It's, it's too variable. Like as psychologists, if we see someone who doesn't have any pride, we would say that they have low self-esteem or that they have a lot of shame yeah. or whatever it might be. But if you're the other end, we go narcissist. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's really interesting, complex thing. So I'll give you a pop culture example, which is there's lots of pop culture references. The one that came to mind straight away is Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So he's a subject of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton, which yep. I absolutely love. It's great. If you've not watched it and listened to the music, it's really, really great. And make sure you do that. It's a, it's, it seems such a strange thing. He's the first treasury secretary of the United States, mm. which seems like such a, like, why would you make a musical out of him? But <laughs> he's this guy who became incredibly influential, was mm. one of the founding fathers of the United States. And he came from like nothing, Nothing basically. and built himself up, yeah. And his character really captures this dichotomy of pride that confidence and success is to be admired. Mm-hmm. We like a confident person, but somebody's negative self-aggrandizing, arrogant, you know, those people to be reviled, Mm. right? So he was incredibly smart and I was reading his biography over the summer and the biographer was saying, you know, he possibly wrote as many words as a human could (laughs) in the time that he had, like just incredible. Yeah, it was prolific. Yeah, but he was also incredibly arrogant and and put people offside. Mm. So here's a little clip from musical Hamilton when mm-hmm. he's confronting Aaron Burr who'd just been elected to the Senate. Our Burr? Since when are you a Democratic Republican? Since being one put me on the up and up again. No one knows who you are or what you do. They don't need to know me. They don't like you. Excuse me? Oh, Wall Street thinks you're great. You'll always be adored by the things you create. But upstate, Wait. people think you're crooked. The scholar seat was up for grabs, so I took it. I've always considered you a friend. I don't see why that has to win. You changed parties to run against my father-in-law. I changed parties to seize the opportunity I saw. I swear your pride will be the death of us all. Beware, it goeth before the fall. The issue so the t- I hit a jackpot okay. in terms of research. <laughs> yeah. The article is by Lee Dickens mm-hmm. from Kenyon College and Richard Robbins from the University of California. It's in the journal Emotion. It's published in November 2020, Mm -hmm. so pretty recent. And it's called Pride and Meta-Analytic Projects. I love it. (laughs) When you're doing a research and you can find like a review article on the topic or a meta-analysis on the topic, it's like, yes, Yes. thank God. So You really did like it. Oh, God, I was happy. So in this article, they talk about that. There was some researchers, Tracy and Robbins, in 2007, and they proposed a theoretical model to handle this 
two-sided nature of pride. Mm -hmm. So they suggested there was authentic pride. So genuine, positive emotion following success. Feels good to feel pride. Yeah. You know, inspires perseverance against hardship, signals to others that we should be respected. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, no one's going to respect you if you don't respect yourself is the kind of mantra. Versus hubristic pride, self-aggrandizing feeling of pride in oneself you know and this is like due to our innate abilities mm-hmm. rather than effort we feel good about ourselves regardless of context so okay. if, and so as a result you can come across full of yourself yeah right so to do explain that more like if you come across as thinking you're really good or sort of hollow well but if it's out of context of yeah. what you're doing yeah then people are going to go this guy's full of himself yeah or this girl's full of herself yeah. right so that they talk about you know we teach children to be proud of what they've achieved we put art on their fridge mm-hmm. right uh, you know, and even there's this pride and participation, mm. right? So in the absence of any true achievement. Yeah. And which made me think straight of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. Where all that happens is he gets sorted into Gryffindor. He'd like, Harry just gets put under the hat. Yeah. The hat says, which house do you want to be in? He goes, yeah. not Slytherin. Yeah. And then he gets put into Gryffindor and everyone's cheering, cheering. wildly. And Dumbledore, the you know the greatest wizard of his generation or whatever, is like you know clapping and yeah. cheering. It's like he did <laughs> he nothing. He didn't do anything. There was like there was like what was the tension there? Everyone? And however many other students did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Everyone else did it, right? Yeah. Anyway, and we. It's because he's the chosen one. <laughs> that's it. Well, so we don't tolerate bragging you know we don't like arrogant mm. pompous individuals especially in australian culture oh especially in australian culture yeah you know i think i would also say like pride is interesting like it's, it's in the eye of the beholder so like mm. the former president trump you know lots of people loved him very prideful individual mm. and i think you can extend that to any brand of politician like your you know that you will discount the arrogance mm. of your thing, but like hate the other ones and say they're they're yeah, they're, they're hubristic, mm. you know that kind of thing. So I think what you were sort of talking about, which is the Goldilocks amount of pride mm. that's to be aimed for, you know, they like not too hot, just not right, too, just right. You don't want people to have an absence of pride. Mm. So is it about being warranted? Is the pride in the correct proportion to achievement? Mm-hmm. And the research seems to line up with this quote unquote positive negative sides of pride with this authentic hubristic dichotomy. So authentic pride seems to be associated with an attribution of effort. So that's, I did well because I tried hard, mm-hmm. right? Versus hubristic pride, which is relates positively to attributions of ability. So in English, what that means is I did well because I'm great. Yeah. Right. So like, say if you're thinking, uh, say you're playing Fortnite with somebody or, or yeah. whatever game and it's like, oh, I did really well. I was really trying hard mm. versus I did well because I'm great. Yeah. You can instantly have a different reaction to that. Yeah, definitely. What's your reaction to that? Eye rolling. Yeah, yeah, eye yeah. rolling. Right? So the authors went on to suggest that the positive-negative dichotomy is less clear when considering how these two types of pride evolve. Okay. So an evolutionary perspective in psychology thinks about what's adaptive or helpful for something to develop so in in a in a body you know what gives you a survival advantage you know and in psychology it's not so much about cells doing x y or z right Mm -hmm. it's about uh, a behavior being adaptive yeah so like is this behavior adaptive and so for pride it's about achieving and maintaining social status Mm mm-hmm so authentic pride, they theorize, evolved to achieve social status through prestige 
gaining respect amongst peers yeah. and earning your place through expertise and merit. Mm. Yeah. Whereas hubristic pride sort of achieves this through dominance mm. is, was the theory. Gaining your position using intimidation and strength. Yeah, that you're better than others because I'm you better say than so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and, and you know, I, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump all the time, but like... But that's him. But that's yeah. kind of, you know, like, in yeah. action, you know, and that and it was effective, mm. right? And responding with sort of anger and frustration yeah. and whatever when that was challenged. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. so both achieve the same outcome increase social rank mm-hmm. but through different mechanisms yeah so both essentially are helpful so this idea of you know so the positive negative mm. valence that we started off thinking about is perhaps it's a little simplistic mm. um and you know i guess the hubristic pride comes with more risks versus say the authentic side which is and i guess it depends on what you term successful or helpful yeah yeah. So, uh, hubristic pride, it is a quick and easy path, mm. right? Versus authentic pride, which is, mm. you know, slogging it out and doing hard yards. I do wonder about how stable each of those are. Like whether authentic pride, you know, lasts longer or takes less to to collapse, if that makes sense. The stability of it. Yeah, mm. interesting idea. They don't, I don't think, they didn't talk about that in yeah. this paper, but... That might tie in a little bit to what they talk about where they link, uh, I'll get to it, but they sort of link hubristic pride as to perhaps being for someone who's got fragile self-esteem. Mm. So there's this idea with self-esteem that you can have high or low self-esteem, but also that you can have fragile self-esteem. So you can, it can be high, but easily punctured, mm. right? And shattered like an ice wall or something yeah. like that. And And so that, you know, if you've got hubristic pride, easily punctured. There's nothing to kind of back it up. Yeah. Whereas if it's authentic pride, it's like you can, you know, people can talk talk shit about your thing. And you're like, well, I don't care, man, because I know, I'm, I know I've done the hard yards. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So it's a bit more robust, which is, it, I guess, what you're talking about. So, you know, they're kind of saying, you know, this suggests that someone high in hubristic pride may have negative qualities and few positive ones. Mm. Yeah. You know, so they, they puff themselves up to try and ex- exude confidence that they don't possess. Mm. And they're saying, you know, genuine pride has many positive benefits, whereas hubris shows, I guess, essentially a more dysfunctional set yeah. of associations. So, hmm. you know, with the idea of a quote-unquote sin, yeah. it's not... You it's know, not that straightforward. No. 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 And even, like I say, with envy, envy could be quite motivating. Yeah. And a lot of these aren't black and white. No. If any, really. <laughs> Yeah. Let's go gluttony, shall we? Yeah. The image that came to mind for me for gluttony before we launch into anything just popped in as strong as absolutely anything. Winnie the Pooh. On this fine day, Winnie the Pooh was invited over to his friend Rabbit's house for a bit of lunch. Being served his most favourite of foods, Pooh happily sat down to eat. And he ate and 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 ate. Until at last, he said to Rabbit in a rather sticky voice, I must be going now. Goodbye, Rabbit. Essentially, gluttony is about this strong desire to consume. So whether that's food or alcohol or anything really, it's about the consumption side of things. And it's about it being excessive and often to the point where you sort of feel sick. Mm -hmm. So any of those kind of like you know, feast scenes or things like that have that feel of gluttony of like indulgence, Mm, mm. particularly through food. So when you see a picture of food, 
you ever have reaction, a strong, I want this kind of mm, reaction or a craving? Yeah, sometimes. What kind of food? Straight to my mind was like burgers. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Um, so these authors wanted to know whether that gut reaction to seeing pictures of food makes people crave food. Mm. Whether by seeing it, you then go, oh my God, I have to have that. Whether what plays a part in whether you go and have that food yeah. is impulsivity or impulse control, that mm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this study is called Impulsive Reactions to Food Cues Predict Subsequent Food Craving. Really got a sort of spoiler alert in their title. But I think it's called Burying the Lead. Yeah. <laughs> by Mule and colleagues in Eating Behaviours in 2013. They got 50 women from a uni in Germany and they had to attend the lab. They were asked not to have any food, caffeine, nicotine or alcohol for three hours before the experiment. Mm. They had their BMI assessed. They indicated their current dieting status. So whether yes or no, they were trying to restrict their food for whatever purpose, but deliberately restrict their food. Yep. And then they completed a range of measures on like food addiction, self-rated success in dieting, impulsiveness. And then after they completed the task I'm going to talk you through, they completed a measure of food craving to see whether they were craving the food after they had done this task. Mm. This one really, it felt like a classic cognitive task in that it was, have you heard of stop signal tasks? No, I don't think so. No. So that's one where you have to react as quickly as possible to a picture on the screen. Oh, yeah. And then every now and then a buzzer will be played and you have to not react when the buzzer goes. Yeah. So the idea is about how much both how quickly you respond and how much you can stop yourself from responding when you've got the impulse yeah, yeah, yeah. to do it. So for their study design, they showed a bunch of different photos to participants in groups, so one after the other, and they'd have to respond, I think it was a cross or a circle, corresponding with whether it was a food or another item like a shoe. Yep. Yep. They had to do that 26 times. The food pictures, some of them are alluring and some are not. So the pictures are like cake, burgers, muffins. Like a trifle looking thing, cupcakes. The non-food items are... They're not like like healthy foods. They're all like treat foods. They're all treat foods. There are a range of sweet and kind of really salty foods. And then a bunch of things that are really just mundane items like a hairdryer, a shoe... A mobile phone. Okay. Whatever. So, so person sitting there, they see one of these items or another. Yep. And they have to respond. Whack a button unless they hear the... And then they have to not whack the button. And they're not told the purpose of the study. What they found were that people who... Like every time someone looked at a picture of food, their reaction time was slower. So they were taking longer to kind of process and look at it yep. and think about it. And they found that people who were hungrier and who reported more food cravings responded to pictures longer as well. So yeah. they kind of stared at the food. But like regardless of any picture, like rather it was food or... Just food pictures. Oh, just food, just pictures, food yeah. pictures. They were locked on the food pictures. They also had more trouble not whacking the button when they were told not to. Yeah. So controlling their impulses. So the people who had food cravings really struggled with that one. They had real trouble stopping pressing the button. Yep. So you can induce food cravings through a whole bunch of different things, which I didn't realize. Yep. I've done all this research about getting people to think about a particular food and then that makes them crave it. 
the sounds yep. then can induce craving. Yep. We're very susceptible. Human oh, well, beings. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's in Georgia in the States, mm. and she was telling me that Coca Cola had sponsored this part of one of the universities in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And we had like long conversation about Coke, and then she sent me this article. And then I'm like, I don't really know what else to say except I think I really want to have a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite. Essentially, it's quite intoxicating when you've got a food craving. Yeah. And the reason, they think that the reason why it's hard to resist is that there's something about craving, whether that's drugs or food or alcohol or whatever it is, means that it takes you longer to process information and you're not as able to, you know, inhibit those impulses. Mm. It's kind of it. It sets something off that makes it really hard for you to say no. Yeah. And they found this again and again, and it was it played a part even in something as simple as pressing a button yeah. with a picture of food. It got in the way. There's some kind of mechanism that. And we'd only be ta- we'd only be talking sort of milliseconds, but yeah. it'd be reliable enough, right? Exactly, for it to but be it's seen. it's stable. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, so the authors were talking about how you know when we crave something, it's really hard to resist. Our inhibitions are are lowered and we're more impulsive. And so any of those tiny cues can be enough. How would you tie this into gluttony? As, as a... Well, I think with the, the overeating is often about pleasure with gluttony. It's yep. about I enjoy this and I want want more of it. And so craving fits into that. Yeah, not stopping yourself. Not stopping yourself, not it being a decision of like, I want to eat this thing. Mm. But more, I, I need more. I need mm. to eat more. Yeah, because it's, sort of, it's interesting compared with, say, pride. Mm. It, 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 there's that real sense of control, isn't yeah. there? The other thing with this that I forgot to mention was that there was no significant element to the relationship for BMI, dieting status, pattern of disordered eating, any of those things to food craving. So yeah. it was entirely separate from that. And I think... Perhaps that also goes with some of the societal pictures about gluttoning and about eating too much. It's treated as a lack of willpower. It's treated as something that... Yeah, see, I, like, I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking like that impulses like in food cravings could cause you to be gluttonous. Mm. But I have this sort of image in my head, I don't know where it's from, but like of a gluttonous sort of king or like roman emperor type thing that it's not so much about craving Mm. and being able unable to control it but there's a i'm doing it because i can Mm. kind of entitlement kind of yeah yeah that kind of just like you know i enjoy i'm a glutton and i I enjoy the finer things and i can do it and so i do it you know rather than something that um, there's no consequences for me yeah although would you say guilty would you say all glut like would you say if someone's a glutton Mm. are they guilty about it not necessarily perhaps it depends on whether you view it as a sin or not yeah well i don't know but like also like you know there's that phrase glutton for punishment Mm. like someone always signing up for more work yeah and you know they kind of indulge in doing something like that you know it's that that indulgent kind of thing yeah but there's almost in enjoying the pain or the inconvenience yeah the yeah hmm. enjoying doing something too much yeah 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 which kind of contrasts quite nicely with uh, sloth, <laughs> uh, which is defined as encouraging laziness, promoting the disinclination to work or exert oneself. So, of course, <laughs> there's no one better mm-hmm. than Homer Simpson. 
I love these lazy Saturdays. It's Wednesday, Homer. Ah, work! <laughs> Uh, so we, we <laughs> in preparing for this plot, it was very hard not to choose Simpsons clip for every single mm-hmm. <laughs> deadly sin. Poor old Homer. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting looking at sloth because when you do a search for sloth, you get a lot of things like sloth bears, <laughs> Malurisus urinisus, fail to spontaneously solve a novel problem, even if social clues and relevant experience are provided. <laughs> That was in the Journal of Comparative Psychology nice. by Amici and Holland. Um, and catch you on. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of sloth research sure. in the psychology. Yeah, because people love sloths. Um, even in, the, in the psychology academic search engine. Anyway. That checks out. <laughs> so what was interesting. Uh, just like, Have we got but, pictures of sloths? Uh, there is a task. So what they did is they got. Looks more like a bear. But they okay. got put honey on mm-hmm. a wall. Like right, and and there was a bucket, yep, and they or or something that they can move, mm. and in order for them to be able to reach the honey, mm. they needed to move this object so they could climb, climb and do it, and so they were trying to <laughs> test whether they could learn how to do that. Right, so they repeatedly received cues to help them solve the task. So before test being tested, you know they observed a human solving the problem, or they received direct relevant experience on how to solve the task. So they were kind of like teaching them how to do it, right? Is there an article about sloths? No, no, I'm getting to the, the bit. Yeah. So so they couldn't, in this article, they couldn't, none of the tested bears used the bucket to access the out-of-reach honey, right? Yeah. And the researchers are at pains to say that the sloths had high motivation, but they still couldn't do it. <laughs> I.e. the sloths weren't sloth-like. They just do, they couldn't were. cognitively <laughs> learn. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But also... Anyway, so... Sloths are bears? Apparently. I wouldn't have... Let's not go into taxonomy. I know, taxonomy. but it's, it's really got me stuck, but continue. So anyway, so... So... Uh, so a search on sloth yielded that. So I was like, well, I've got to, I've got to go somewhere. I've got to choose a different term here. Mm-hmm. So sloth is frequently understood to be synonymous with behavioral laziness mm-hmm. or inaction. It's a meaning that someone's idle or does nothing. And so the roots of this lie in, again, theology, uh, when sloth was primarily associated with the concept of acedia, mm-hmm. which apparently refers to sadness and boredom. So a mental mm-hmm. state that led a praying monk's mind to wander and this impeded his spiritual focus. Okay. Right. So then did like a search on like laziness, mm-hmm. right? And then you get things like factors related to the use of pedestrian bridges in university students in Honduras. <laughs> I love the specificity. Yeah, it's the transportation research yeah. part F, Traffic Psychology and Behaviour Journal, Volume 71, nice. 2020, by Landa Blanco and Avilia. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually going to get to a, a like, a, like my, so this is, this is the pre, so I'm being unsloth like. But um, also I feel like you're now giving me permission to mention the range of different ways that the search for lust goes. You can definitely, it goes awry. Mm. Listeners, you know, fastening for that one. Yeah. Um, the, so 
I was like, what is this piece of research? Like, really? And then, like, it's pretty interesting, like, as a justification there. Like, considering the motivation for most psych research, listen to this, considering the deaths and injuries due to runovers near pedestrian bridges are preventable events, this research aims to analyse factors related to the use of pedestrian bridges in students on a public university in Honduras. I'm like... That's actually a pretty good yeah. motivation for That's a study. That's pretty useful. Like compared to some of the like the garbage yeah. I've read over the years. Yeah. And uh, pasting honey on the walls. With the <laughs> pasting honey on the walls. And trying to teach them to just use the bucket <laughs> and get the honey. Uh, anyway, someone was high when they came up with that. <laughs> so. In, in the Honduras study, like they did actually do a logistic regression and determine that significant variables that explained the use of a public bridge included being in a hurry, mm-hmm. believing it's faster across the street, thinking that public bridges have bad infrastructure, laziness, which mm-hmm. is how it came up in the search term, and thinking that using the bridge will be tiresome. Mm. So all those things would reduce the use of a bridge. Sure. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so. We're leaving Honduras? Two studies, two studies down, me being not sloth like at okay. all. Okay. I Is that the up. purpose of this to prove that you? It may have like driven. like counteractivated mm. my sloth-like behaviour mm. after putting off preparing for this pod <laughs> for weeks. Um, what I thought was interesting was uh, an article on academic procrastination, mm-hmm. uh, something that both you and I have procrastinated over. Great skills on. Yep. We did do do a lengthy episode. I think it's number sixteen mm. back in the housing days of twenty seventeen about procrastination. That was that was really fun. Mm. So. Took us- so long it really it was actually late that pod i remember it was that. so late uh so the article i've got is from 2018 journal of behavioral sciences and it's titled prevalence of academic procrastination and reasons for academic procrastination university students so this is a study from pakistan mm. by afizal and jaami from a quiet i azam university in islamabad in pakistan mm. Do we need to explain procrastination? I mean, I feel like most people kind of know it, but Mm. it's a tendency to delay or initiation or completing an important task to the point of discomfort. Mm -hmm. So it can be an enduring trait viewed as a predisposition to postpone a task which is necessary to to complete some goal and also might be related to temperament. So there's a subset of academic procrastination to nearly or always put off an academic task. Mm or to nearly or always experience problematic level of anxiety associated with procrastination. It's your go-to procrastination it's, at, the moment, at the moment. It's definitely doing things that feel like they are productive but are not like colour-coding a to-do list, entering in all of the public holidays for the next two years into my diary, oh, that's a good one. things like that that kind of, well, yes, you need to do them pr- at some point, yeah. but they're not what's important now. And the detail to which I do them is certainly not important. Oh, so yeah, I've been much more on the completely unproductive. Kids. Well, my procrastination is always like that. It's always close enough to be related that I can alleviate some of the guilt. Actually, no, I think I've got two. Whereas there's, there's, <laughs> there's and then there's like I sit myself down to do work and mm. then I get engrossed in something, trying to set up a new email account on my phone. Yeah, tech issues work, are a great one. New workplace when I really needed to be doing other things. Yeah. Re- research indicates there's two major factors are predictive, a fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Anxiety, perfectionism, lack of self-confidence or an aversiveness of the task itself and laziness fits in with that. So they wanted to test reasons for academic procrastination Mm -hmm. and look at this across two disciplines, social science students Mm -hmm. and natural sciences students. Okay. So they had 200 masters or PhD level students, 100 from each department at a public uni in Islamabad. Mm -hmm. And they gave them questionnaire, the procrastination assessment scale student. 
Mm-hmm. They assess like the prevalence of procrastination. So it's like writing papers, studying for exams, weekly reading, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then reasons for procrastination. So task aversion, fear of success, you know, low frustration tolerance, peer influence, laziness, time mm-hmm. management, fear of failure. So mm-hmm. the, the more, so if you're a perfectionistic person, you always delay or it's hard for you to get stuff done. If you are a procrastinator mm-hmm. and perfectionistic, stop being perfectionistic mm-hmm. and get it done. Makes a huge difference. Right. It's, it is. Yeah. Yeah, someone who's written two postgraduate theses, I could tell you. Because often it feels like, well, I don't have enough time to do this perfectly, so I won't do it now, yeah. I'll do it later. Yeah, or you spend so much time creating it to mm. be perfect that you don't even finish it. So what was interesting, I thought it was quite low, only 24% of variance in procrastination mm-hmm. was predicted from these reasons. So, which mm. I would, it's only about a quarter, right? So it's not that great. Yeah. Task aversiveness, decision-making and risk-taking were the strongest factors. So mm. laziness is within that. Fear of failure in this group was not predicting and that was not expected. It's been found, like it was contrary to other stuff. Were the social sciences students, in, did they include psychologists in training? I, don't because i feel so. like that maybe if they had it would have been higher <laughs> i don't know i don't know so they found that task aversiveness was more common in social science students mm. so laziness and poorer time management were higher in social science students than in uh, natural sciences students mm-hmm. also rebellion against control decision making and lack of assertion was more common amongst social science students so they seem to think that maybe social science students were more free slots, mm-hmm. more leisure time than, say, perhaps like a busy natural mm. sciences postgraduate I mean, degree. Yeah, usually at the on-campus time is less for social yeah. sciences. There's more reading, less so, so this is kind of structure. like so, so this is like there's this theory around like more option to be lazy, mm. the more likely you will be, which kind of makes sense to me. Which is probably why people are more, well, certainly I am more productive when I'm busy. Yeah when I'm having a hectic day yeah. than when I've got a quiet day. The phrase, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Mm. It's, it's very true. The final thing I thought was really interesting was risk-taking. Mm. So the sensation of turning something in in the last minute, <laughs> the thrill of this adds flavour to life for some people. And so that would then perhaps be reinforcing and mm. like so you would get habitual in delaying tasks. And so that would then suggest a temperamental link to procrastination. Yeah. If you're sloth-like and lazy and yeah. then you get it all together at the end, yeah. it's all quite exciting and yeah. then you kind of get that. I, I did know, it. And that could be a reinforcing thing. Yeah. So I thought that was quite nice. interesting. Shall we take a break? Yeah, let's do that. I think uh, let's be sloth-like for a minute. Yeah, sure. We'll see you soon. See you saw you sighing at me okay thanks for listening guys we're just having a break yes we had some dodgy donuts yeah they were not did not eat them supermarket donuts they generally cinnamon donuts generally pretty reliable yeah not tonight not tonight so no gluttony it's a shame no no we're not even drinking tonight no tea and water something wrong with us send help (laughs) listeners (laughs) where would they send help to they should send vouchers for gin to twoshrinkspod at gmail.com mm-hmm. or like little coupon things that you can use in an online shop to mm. at twoshrinkspod on Twitter. Yep. Or they can visit our website, twoshrinkspod.com. Yep. Where you can find a whole lot of 
lists of the episodes we've done in chronological order, but also arranged by topic. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for something specific, say, yeah, personality disorders or a particular disorder, then you can find that out there. And that's about it. Mm. Mm. We're focused. You <laughs> <laughs> always look so suspicious first, when we get to it. First one back. First yeah. one back. Let's get on to it. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. We are going to do the last three sins on our list. Go for it. So we've got lust, wrath, and greed mm-hmm. to go. I'm going to start with lust. Okay. You would think that this would be the most exciting topic. Well, you said it was exciting. I'm kind of very curious to see, uh, like I could see lots of interesting ways in which you could operationalize this behavior. You know how when you were searching, you found weird things about sloths? Yep. Yeah. You search for lust, you come up with, I'd say, two main categories of things if you just use that keyword. Okay. I'm thinking... Something to do with chocolates, roses, and perfume. No. Okay. Lower urinary tract infections (laughs) and religious texts. Really? Yep. Okay. Yep. About how sinful lust is. UTIs? Yeah. It's L-U-S-T stands for lower urinary and then there's something and then tract. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Um, When you put in desire, you end up with a lot of Freudian stuff about how we all want our parents Mm -hmm. um, and people who desire things that are not socially acceptable. (laughs) I totally offended Freudian friend of mine recently when they were talking about the the id and the ego, the super ego. I said, do these things even exist? Like really? (laughs) Like really? Well, you see, I I couldn't go the Freudian direction. So... Desire was pretty much out unless I wanted to talk about something really sort of serious and dark, like desiring things that weren't okay. Okay. Not okay. So, last, I ended up finding one article that fit what we wanted. Mm -hmm. Something that was light, something that was about lust or love, but more lust because those two are different. We'll Mm -hmm. talk about that. I found one that was about first impressions on Mm -hmm. online websites and how we initially judge other people mm-hmm. when we either feel love or lust okay. before seeing their image. Yeah. Okay. If we think about someone lustful, the first person that comes to mind for me is Barney from How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Someone who's lustful generally, it's someone who wants, essentially lust is about wanting sex and it for it to be short term or once off. Raise, it is a hot bartender. Do you know how long I have been waiting to land up? My friends, I have been with many women in my day. Lawyers, teachers, poets, doctors, professional equestrians, amateur equestrians, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. Yes, we're to the rhyming section now. So he's listing all the women that he's been with. And there are several episodes that focus on the amount of women that Barney's been with. But it's always, he only sleeps with them once. And it's there's a list of criteria of who will sleep with and he's on to the next. It's always seeking out the next one, often while he's still with the one before. Last is about that. Love is about a longer term plan. 
wanting to be with someone for a longer period. It's more kind of future focused. Mm -hmm. The authors are Dillman and colleagues in the Journal of Social Psychology 2014. And it's called When First Comes Love or Lust, How Romantic and Sexual Cues Bias First Impressions in Online Social Networking. Mm -hmm. What these authors wanted to know was that if you could prime someone to feel lust or love before seeing an image or a profile of someone, whether that would change how they perceived that person. Yep. So whether their first impression would be different. And they wanted to do this on three with three websites. They wanted to do Facebook, yep. a dating website, and the sexiest of all places, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the three <laughs> three that they focused on. Yeah. Do you want to know the really juicy bit? Yeah. Word searches. What? What do you mean? Like each person was randomly assigned to a condition and they had to complete a word search that had no like list of words, just find write down as many as you can see. Oh, okay. One of them had lustful words in it. Yep. One of them had romantic words in it. And one of them had neutral words in it. So lustful words versus romantic words? Okay, I have a list. I do love a word search. Yeah. So some of the lustful sexy words were lust, bed, attraction, fling, hot, physical, sexual, body, condom. Yep. Romantic words, love, romantic, heart, adoration, flowers, together, devotion, attachment, bond. So it was the lame words. I mean, love words. Yeah. (laughs) Neutral, cerebral, rational, objective, thought, wise, aware, Alert, sage, and knowing. What if you were a sapiosexual? That would just be like. Well, that's that what would I, be just triggering off. That's right what I there. thought, and and we will get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry. So participants had to You've look at this. An email, haven't you? No, just just I've highlighted some issues okay. with the study. They had to complete the word search. They had three minutes to write down as many words as they could find, and then they were directed to the next task. They were then shown profile, Facebook profile first up. That was supposed to be generic. It was someone's real profile that had been anonymized, but there was nothing on it that was innately alluring, Mm -hmm. unless you're into particular things, I suppose. So it was things like cars, cooking, Ikea, camping, shopping, different music genres, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Nothing overtly sexual. After they'd seen that profile, they then had to... I don't know. Busy day in Ikea. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) Yeah. There are two points in this study. Building something at home. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yep. Uh, there were a couple of points in this study where I had exactly those thoughts. The first one was IKEA. <laughs> the second one was the one that comes in the next bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it very much reflected the author's own ideas about what was sexual or not. Yep. They showed a list of 35 adjectives and people had to rate how much that profile fit with those. So there were things like alluring, flirtatious, provocative, racy, Kind, sensitive, sentimental. So they rated their profile, yeah. Yeah, they matched those three categories. And then they were asked about their perception of the purpose of the study to check whether they knew what it was that was going on throughout and then debrief. What they found, well, what they were hypothesizing was that there would be a difference between each one of those groups and then that men would prefer the lustful primed one and women would prefer the romantic primed words. Yeah. Yeah. What they found was actually that there was no effects for gender whatsoever. I was going to say, those are massively sexist, yep. um, sexist yep. uh, hypothesis. And spoiler alert, that applies to all three categories. There was no gender. No, no gender. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But they did find that the for Facebook, 
the people primed with sex identified more sexual qualities in the profile Mm -hmm. than the other two groups. And both the sex and romance groups rated the romantic qualities higher than the control group. And they thought, well, those things are often linked in people's minds. So it would make sense that they would be, have a bit of overlap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Second round, they did a dating website. So they did exactly the same procedure, but with a dating dating profile. profile. The description here is the one that I think I took the biggest, probably equal issue with as to Ikea, which was the profile said they liked getting coffee and browsing in Barnes and Noble. You would just... And that sounds pretty sexual to me. <laughs> I, you know. It's, it's your... I just, I just don't think you can make any did assumptions. You just go flushed? Then? <laughs> yes, yes, I did. <laughs> like it's not a visual format. <sighs> if it was raining. <laughs> um, so the same as with the first one. If people were primed with sex, they thought that the profile was more overtly was more sexual yeah. but nothing about the romance side of things that wasn't a factor the last one of course was with the sexiest website linkedin and they did the same again but it was just a it didn't have any personal qualities on the page it was just about their job history mm-hmm. as is the case with linkedin once again people primed with sex found the profile more sexually attractive than people who weren't mm-hmm. And romance wasn't a factor. So romance only showed up for Facebook. Otherwise, everything else was sex. I'm not sure. So essentially the conclusions were if you prime people about sex, they'll think other people are sexier. Yeah. And that men and women... Don't differ on that. Don't differ on that. The authors wondered whether it was because prior research that has looked at the same thing has used quite explicit images and they found that women often respond with disgust or discomfort Mm, to mm, those images. And so maybe it's about that rather than the subtlety of what... Yeah, like because I think the acceptance of explicit pornography or things Mm. like that is much more acceptable amongst males than amongst females. I mean, gross generalisation there, but... But societally and otherwise. There's like a a repulsion Mm. amongst a lot of women exactly um whereas i think you know there is probably for some men but i think for, for a lot of men probably not. whereas with words with it's words kind it's of a different. different way of curing it and so you get a different yeah. result yeah interesting there was one comment in the conclusion that i had a sort of bone to pick with yep which was a idea that representing yourself online as interested in romance could inhibit the amount of unsolicited sexual advances you get from men as a woman in particular because it runs counter to wanting casual sex i have a problem with that if we're talking about facebook linkedin and dating sites i feel as though that you wouldn't receive those things if only you presented yourself in a way that didn't suggest anything sexual and you're kind of like on a professional website how how do you yeah and i think you know women receive those images and regardless things. Regardless, you can have a private profile with nothing but your name and that greyed out icon and still receive things. How is that being somehow sexually provocative? But so I kind of went, mm, I think that's drawing it's a little bit too far yep. to kind of go that's a factor. Yeah. But the rest of it, I mean, if you're going to... if you're well, gonna... I mean, I, But I think, I guess the theory would there be, I'm, I'm hmm. not mm. defending anything, but like the, the theory would be like, you know, if you're saying, I don't want this thing... Hmm. 
in theory, you would hope that that would in theory. reduce and the amount that would happen. And perhaps on a dating website, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But it's the other two where I'm kind of like, hmm, mm. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Also, I would say that like in some cases, like saying you're not up for that could act as a, as a beacon mm-hmm. for that kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, and that would incur someone's wrath. Yay. So uh, the, my last one's like wrath. Which I thought it was revenge, but it's defined as strong, vengeful anger or indignation mm. or retributionary punishment for an offence or crime. So that's kind of a bit close mm. to revenge. I, yeah, look, searching on this was not that, I didn't come up with anything that was that useful. It's interesting, isn't it? Which ones Yeah, like there's a lot of wrath and which ones not. The, the grapes of wrath and, mm. and things like that. And, and I was really not interested in reading any relig- religious stuff. Mm. It's like, oh, come on, man. Like, seriously. Um, so I, you know, so I, so I operationalized it as revenge because mm. I think that that's probably a pretty. It's close. Yeah. Like, so like, you know, like if you're extremely angry, mm. like you incur the wrath of somebody, mm. right. Then yeah. you could cop it. It's mm. essentially what I was thinking about. So, so pop culture, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Uh, I know where you're going. Everyone knows where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Khan. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity. Course you had to. So that's uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. Uh, side note, <laughs> I found this thing on YouTube, which is um, modern day trailers. Mm-hmm. And someone like had recut the trailer for Wrath of Khan, like in the way that they do trailers <laughs> now. It's like awesome. So good. <laughs> and it's like July 4, 1982. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look it up. So we could definitely do a full podcast on revenge. Mm. It is a f- like some of the re- like I wish I'd had a whole day to do reading on it. Yeah, really interesting topic and a lot of we research. Haven't, we haven't thought of that one before. No, and and probably the only one that I did reading on that I I thought could sustain like a really lengthy discussion. Mm. So this is by Peter Stralin and colleagues, and he's from the University of Adelaide, but there's also some colleagues from Europe and published in the British Journal of Social Psychology in 2020. Mm -hmm. And it's titled, When Transgressors Intend to Cause Harm, The Empowering Effects of Revenge and Forgiveness on Victim Wellbeing. So they talk about that, transgressions are disempowering mm-hmm. you know they communicate disrespect of the victim the relationship with the victim the values that the victim presume they shared with that person and how broad are we like transgressions how not is it just defined so it could be anything yeah so it's just a general theory mm. so and victims reactions to someone's transgression is therefore based on motivation to restore or develop a sense of power. Mm-hmm. So a non-trigger warning, I'm not going to be talking about anything 
violent or anything like that in yeah. this discussion. That this is going to be experimental study, much the same that Amy has been talking mm. through the whole time. But it's of going through how revenge and forgiveness post an event mm-hmm. impacts on the victim's well-being. So basically, okay. so if you if you enact revenge mm-hmm. or if you enact forgiveness, Which how one? does that impact on your well-being mm-hmm. as an individual, if that makes sense? Revenge feels better. Is that the conclusion? Well, I mean, <laughs> so, well, it's complicated mm. and in a really good social psychology kind of way, not, nice. in, not in the kind of the... Uh, uh, we don't have an answer. Difficult yeah. kind of thing. So they talked about empowerment as being a key concept here. Mm-hmm. So refers to the process that the disempowered individual restores or develops a sense of power, okay. right? The concern we've felt or experienced episodic personal power, if you want to be really pedantic about mm-hmm. it. I do. Power is inherently rewarding, liberating, gives a sense that you've got control mm-hmm. of your life, that you can act relatively unconstrained it's kind of good you can be you know future orientated you can be attuned to opportunities so on and so forth right and when you experience power it tends to trigger what we call approach related responses that includes increased positive affect uh, enhanced self-esteem so on and so forth so being empowered is kind of good Mm. essentially they talked about revenge and forgiveness. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll define these and then I'll talk about the studies. Revenge is being conceptualized as an individual response to disrespectful treatment mm-hmm. in which like a harmed individual endeavors to make a perpetrator suffer. Okay, yeah. Uh, refers to their individual's desire to restore justice in such a way that they perceive as appropriate and proportional. Mm. And it's often about that suffering, isn't it, rather than justice which could be that the other person isn't suffering to that extent yeah 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 like you know i I was i've always find the idea of justice a very very odd concept Mm. um you know because there's that the idea of what's just versus revenge i think Mm. is can they can overlap yeah but they but often it's quite different Mm. i think sort of seems like the focus is different yeah the intent so there's several reasons why revenge could be empowering. It can teach an offender a lesson. Mm-hmm. can communicate that someone will not put up with bad behavior. can indicate strength. Mm-hmm. So it could be associated with self-esteem, bolstered self-esteem following a transgression. And evolutionary perspective, again, suggests that revenge is adaptive by discouraging recidivism. So basically mm-hmm. like discouraging people doing something again. Yeah. Right? It's an assertive response to disrespect and assertiveness is a characteristic of high power. Mm. Okay. They say, despite the popular saying that revenge is sweet, Mm. revenge often actually leads to a mix of emotions. Mm. So relief, satisfaction, but also guilt, shame, regret, that kind of stuff. So what they wanted to do in this study was to test how does revenge reduce negative affective responses associated with a transgression. So like you feel bad after someone's transgressed Mm -hmm. against you and then how would revenge then change your emotional change your emotion right yep and so they were thinking well it's empowering maybe power is this mediator Mm -hmm. to explain it they also i'll talk a little bit about forgiveness just because that's what they included and it's kind of an interesting counterpoint forgiveness in contrast is this process where a victim's thoughts feelings and motivations towards offenders shift from being negative to being either at least neutral mm-hmm. or, or at most positive. Mm-hmm. The way I think about it is like if you forgive someone, 
you could either just you're not feeling negative towards them mm. or you could be actually feeling positive towards them right so this is usually manifest interpersonally Mm -hmm. so in this study they're going to talk about forgiving behavior a lot of scholars have talked about circumstances where forgiveness is seems to be disempowering but that they used to talk about well you know it can actually be empowering transgression is akin to an emotional weight Mm. and so imposed by someone else so if you're a victim and you're carrying around that emotional weight you know that comes at a cost and if you cast aside that weight you communicate to yourselves but also potentially to others that the consequences of that action towards you doesn't cause you Mm. is not causing you any grief they've got no power over you anymore right you're in control of your own circumstances again your well-being your future you're free of it yeah right so it's empowering because it means experiencing communicating a sense of agency Mm. yeah if if that kind of makes sense because i think there's a that that's a nice positive framing Mm. of it so they were talking about well you know Again, this empowering root of effects of forgiveness may explain why forgiveness leads to well-established in research positive outcomes, including better physical mental mm. health and improved well-being and relationships. There's a whole whole list of things. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the complexity of that and how often you know, as psychologists we hear that people experience a lot of pressure to forgive someone mm. and they might not necessarily want to or be able to but often like it's i'm thinking about like family circumstances where it's you have to forgive so and so and we have to Mm. mend fences and whatever and whether perhaps the times when it doesn't lead to that warm fuzzy feeling are the times when people are sort of pressured into it rather than making their own decision yeah i mean i think i would say forgiveness needs to be something that needs to occur naturally Mm. and pressuring is going to backfire yeah and and i think a lot of people put pressure on themselves to fix so mm. oh, no, i need to forgive them for this thing yeah and whereas i think as a therapist i often play the role of like we well, sound like you're pretty fucking angry yeah man. why like, do you have to yeah like, and then paradoxically you get them angry about it and then they do actually forgive them because mm. they you've helped them move through it yeah that can make sense so in this study they well in this paper they did two studies mm-hmm. they did an experimental scenario much like we've been talking about all night mm-hmm. to testing for causality and then they did a second study outside of the lab which was correlational but related to real life transgressions Mm -hmm. and so they got them to recall stuff so in the first study they got 381 participants Mm -hmm. to imagine that they had a friend friend called sam out with a group of friends sam happens to tell everyone a story about you that they and others think is funny but makes you feel embarrassed and humiliated Mm -hmm. and then they randomly allocated participants to one of six experimental conditions and so they manipulated by going well later you take sam aside and sam says that they either meant or did not mean Mm -hmm. to upset you so that's two conditions there Mm -hmm. and then you either told sam that despite what they did you forgive them so that'd Mm -hmm. be the forgiveness or you tell them that you're going to get revenge on them for what they did so that's a revenge one Mm -hmm. at the next opportunity or you don't do anything about it which is the control so Three by two, yep. so six conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the second study, and what I'll do is I'll talk about the results in a sec. So mm-hmm. in, the, in the second study, what they did is they looked at the effects that they observed in study one, but in the real world uh, with experiences of actual transgressions, they got participants to recall a hurtful event from the past yep. and complete items about how they responded to the event, including measures of revenge and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed them to, it's a bit more real world. So... Skipping to the results, basically they found that 
there was this interaction on empowerment in both studies. So in the first study, when the offender's intent was high, taking revenge was less disempowering than doing nothing. And so if you're an avenger, experienced more positive and less negative effect because they're not doing anything. So if Sam meant to embarrass you, then you felt less negative about taking revenge. No, you felt less negative and and you felt better, better about because it. you take, took yep. revenge. Right. Yep. And then in study two, they reserved the same thing. So mm. the more participants reported perceived offender intent was high, mm. the more the revenge was empowering. Yeah, because so, they deserved it. Yeah. Is, is yeah, the rationale. Yeah. That's it. So when victims perceive offenders intended to cause harm, getting revenge is the more sensible tactic compared to doing nothing, mm-hmm. at least in terms of empowering victims. Mm which I thought was really interesting. So it's not, so revenge is not, is a useful tact, according to this, revenge would be a useful tactic if you perceive that the intent was Mm. intentional. Whereas if you, you could imagine like, say someone tried to ram you off the road and then you got revenge by ramming them versus say someone accidentally doing it and then you doing it. Like you could kind of like, I'm not definitely not condoning (laughs) those two things, but but the emotional content of it is different. It's it's hurtful in a different way. Yeah. 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 You know, but yeah, you kind of you're being hurt, and so you rectifying that. Yeah. Is kind of the thing. They talked about well, previous research has said that revenge can be satisfying when the victims can see the transgressor understands the reasons for it mm. or has learned for it, but it's unsatisfying when it serves no clear function, which fits precisely with what we're talking yeah. about there. So, in terms of like a direct effect, though, what was interesting was that. Revenge was associated with high levels of negative affect and clinical symptoms. But to the extent that victims got revenge against a deliberately hurtful transgressor, they felt empowered so much so that the relationship between negative affect and symptoms flipped around. So getting getting revenge this is this is in study two with a real world situation. Getting revenge was now associated with less negative affect and fewer Mm. clinical symptoms. And Revenge was also associated with more positive affect, especially when the offender is meant to hurt. Mm-hmm. Sort of interesting. So they're saying that if revenge is indeed to be sweet, it needs to be functional. Mm. As the intent increases, revenge becomes a, an appropriate response. And then this is this through empowering. Do you want me to last word on forgiveness? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to be condoning just revenge. So <laughs> they found in both studies there was a direct effect of forgiveness on empowerment so that basically that forgiving someone is empowering Mm -hmm. and it was not qualified by the intent of the of the offender okay so whether sam wanted to or not Mm. forgiving was empowering yeah and there was evidence to show that the victims felt less negative and more positive and it's to some sense empowering so that's kind of interesting Mm. the less forgiving a person is the less empowered they feel and the more negative their effective response is essentially so it's saying that forgiveness is also Mm. important as well so there is a theory in previous research about forgiveness as coming you know as being costly for mm-hmm. people like that's a sort of burden yeah or no that the you know, forgiving when someone doesn't deserve it mm. that that's a problem but they didn't find that in okay. the study so much yeah so you know they finish up really just saying you know when if someone intends to cause harm it's better to get revenge than to do nothing <laughs> so in insofar as revenge is empowering Hmm. And if Avengers do experience revenge as sweet, it's probably because they felt empowered at getting back at someone who meant to hurt them. Yeah. Which you don't see very often in 
psychological literature around, you know, <laughs> be vengeful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Act negatively, but it sort of it's interesting. All right, we're gonna finish off with greed. Yeah, let's do that. The we thought about a couple of characters that could fit greed. The first one both of us thought about was Scrooge. Scrooge McDuck. Yep. Diving into like a pile of gold, which would hurt. <laughs> it would really anyway. hurt. Maybe not if you're a duck. I don't know. The second one was a character from Wall Street. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. So that's Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, play by Michael Douglas. Cracker of a movie. It is. And it actually fits quite nicely with this paper. It was called Greedy Bastards, testing the relationship between wanting more and unethical behaviour. Mm-hmm. And I just like the phrase greedy bastards. By St. John's and colleagues in the Netherlands, 2019. The paper's looking at whether greed makes people do things that are unethical, mm-hmm. whether it's inherently bad or not, that we kind of have this moralistic idea about it, but does it actually lead to those behaviours? And it made me think a list of things about what we assume greedy people do, things like exploiting others or taking all of the resources or whatever. And it made me think about how much hoarding of things we've seen in COVID and how much judgment there was of that from different people going, why is it that everybody's hoarding toilet paper or pasta Mm. or whatever it might be without a lot of understanding what might be going on for people about why it is that they felt that desperate need Mm. to do it. It was just sort of assumed that they were being greedy. Mm. and taking what other people needed and that in itself it's not inherently bad if the circumstances are that there's something that's needed it's often a weighing up of things yeah and also like greed is a eye of the beholder Mm. scenario isn't it you know the what might seem greedy to somebody else might seem perfectly justified exactly i think And the authors made the argument that, you know, there are a whole bunch of times when having more actually benefits society as a whole. So, you know, in a functional tax system, having more money in theory means that you then pay more tax that then contributes more to society. Mm It can be mixed. <laughs> so I'm just biting my laughter with that. But yeah, I know. Fine. And I and I <laughs> also was thinking like, I don't know of a tax system yet. Yeah, we're going to move, yeah, move on. Three studies. First one, they wanted to know whether there was a relationship between having the trait of being greedy, so that's the stable over time, and unethical behaviour. So they got people to fill in a survey. They had a lot of participants for this research. For the first study, there were about three and a half thousand mm-hmm. participants. And so they asked them how often 
they engaged in various unethical behavior and it was things like not saying anything if you're given too much change cheating on a partner running a red light bullying other people in school evading a fare on public transport like across mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different categories and then they got them to complete a measure of dispositional greed so trait greed and that was things like i always want more one can never have too much money as soon as i've acquired something i want more mm-hmm. that kind of combination of things the results were clear that there was support for the idea that the more trait greed you have the more you report engaging in unethical behaviors yeah and they also found that people who were higher in that trait greed thought that it was more acceptable to engage in those behaviors, not just that they did them. Yeah. But they kind of thought it was fine. They added in a self-control measure from one sample and found that the relationship was mediated by self-control. So if you imagine two equally greedy people, but one has more self-control than the other, the, the one with more control won't behave as unethically yeah. as the one with less, makes which sense. makes sense. Second thing they wanted to do was check that out in a lab. So they got students to come in as guinea pigs, 172 of them. They got them to play what they called a game, but I'm not sure that I would call it a game, where they got them to imagine that a plumbing company needed to come and solve a hypothetical issue. Mm-hmm. And you had to pick which plumbing company you would hire mm-hmm. based on a price estimate and a bribe that you would be given. The way that it worked was that the higher the bill was of the plumbing, the higher the bribe the student would receive. Plumber would bribe you? Yeah. If okay. you take my, I'll give you 50 bucks on the side yep. if you pick my quote. Yeah. The student had to pick which one to go for. And is it like a for a household plumbing issue or for like an organization? This was for like a student agency. Okay. So you're like the treasurer of the... Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Because like if it's at home, then I'm like, yeah. bribe me up, dude. Bribe, do <laughs> so what you need to do. Yeah, okay. so it's not your money. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The students were also told that one participant at random would be given a prize at the end of the week of this experiment and that the prize would be the value of the bribe that they chose. So they were invested in, there was a possibility they would receive. Did they actually the do bribe. that? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. What proportion do you think of the students said that they'd take a bribe? A third? Close to 80%. Wowzers. How much do you reckon they'd take? It was between zero and 144 euros was the option. No idea. No idea? Halfway. Yeah, 70, 70 euros was the average. And yeah, it's not, not too much, not too little. No, like I'm, I'm not going to blow all of the money. Yeah. I'm just going to... It's not going to get me too much trouble. Yeah. yeah. I think it's that operates on the same idea of when there's three different price points, we always go for the middle. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the same results played out in practice as in the previous study. Participants with higher trait yeah. grade were more likely to choose the company with a higher bribe than people with low. And the higher the greed that they had on a trait level, the more money... They accepted. If you put those results together, so far you've got a relationship between greed and saying that you do unethical things and thinking that they're okay and then also behaviourally in the moment accepting bribes. So we know that self-control matters from that first study and so they wanted to test out what happened if you looked at how desirable the behaviour was as well as how much control. They did got you to think about two scenarios. One was finding a wallet mm-hmm. with money in it and from an obviously wealthy person. And you're struggling financially. Do you send back the wallet to the address of the driver's license or do you hang on to it? And the second scenario involved being away on a business trip and meeting someone attractive in a bar who's also attracted to you. They ask you to come back to their room. You're both in relationships. Do you go 
or not. Mm-hmm. And so they asked for each group. They asked about what they do, how tempting the behavior was, and how much willpower you'd need so to that, be able to so resist. Is that a grade or is that lust? Well, that's that's a good question. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Yep. And then they completed the same measures as before. For the wallet scenario, both self-control and desire played a part, but desire was more important. So the people who were greedier were more likely to keep the wallet because of increased desire to do the behavior rather than having less self-control. For the affair scenario, self-control wasn't a part of it at all. It was only about desire. Mm. So it was... If the person thought that that option was more desirable, they were more likely to cheat on their partner. Self-control wasn't significant no. about whether or not they did it. So, I mean, it's a pretty simple outcome, really. If you're greedier, you're more likely to think that things unethical behavior is okay. And if it means that you get more stuff, then there you go. Like, it's kind of, it naturally flows on. Mm. It's, yeah, there's not well, much the antecedents on that is. What comes before the yeah. the greediness? Yeah, yeah. Well, before the greed, mm. I mean, they've conceptualised it as the trait drives the behaviour. Yeah, I'd be kind of curious to know what sort of is behind that. Or like, or my, do you see my it other, at work? In what kind of way? Like, I guess I'm thinking about. Well, I mean, like staff this, eating like chocolates that are given. I meant more with clients. <laughs> that's, that's, it's more, more gluttony. gluttony. <laughs> I, I think that the times that as a psychologist I've seen it most is hoarding. And in I used to see it a lot with families who had intergenerational stuff that was related to coming from refugee backgrounds mm. or war-torn backgrounds where they'd lost a lot. Mm. And the parents had taught like the kids to hold on to everything and keep everything. Yeah. And then it had kind of become expanded over time to making sure that there was enough. I think I've, I think I've more sort of seen it in terms of families not sharing resources, mm. you know, so like I had a, a patient who, uh, you know, had a period of time where she'd been homeless, but the family had had a rental property that was sitting vacant. You yeah. know, that, that this yeah. kind of stuff that, you know, or one member of the household drinks and gambles and... Yeah. Um, or, or that kind of thing and, and another member and does mm. the rest of it and so the one one person sort of acting greedily and the other one's suffering and, and the other and the other one's you know self-sacrificing yeah. i guess so you know in which can lead to suffering like mm. so i think that's probably where i've mm. seen it yeah that example i've seen um, a fair bit too you know i sort of think about greed is selfishness really yeah because it's about what you need rather than see i would say i would even say it's need yeah, which is kind of interesting. And I do think that over over the course is like you do sort of see that some of these quote unquote sins, there's a commonality mm. like in terms of overlappingness around control mm. and around impulsivity or, or cravings. Which is like a pe- perhaps where the religious overtones come into it as well of that being seen as being more virtuous to be able to control the things that you want or need or all yeah. of these things fit into that yeah, that yeah. basket of a good yeah, person think, having think, control. I mean, even even like modern stuff, like I think the Twilight series was all about mm. restricting oneself yeah. and that being virtuous. Question, so we started off like with my one, like pride being is being posited as being that one of the underlying mm. kinds of things. But I don't know whether it would really be, like I don't think it would tie into a lot of, no. uh, a lot of the ones that we've talked about. No, like I can see how it would 
play a part in some of them or would be closely connected, Mm. how greed or having a lot can then boost your social status and can be Mm. tied in. But it's greed, not pride. It's greed, not pride, yeah. Yeah. Although I think greed was in the other one that was, I think, deemed to be... Mm. Like one of the important things. Yeah, like they the pair high together. Order factors. Anyway, we've been going for a really long time. We have. <laughs> so thanks for listening. We are going to be back with another fun one mm. next time. And uh, we will see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.